Good morning. I'm Shandy April, and this is War Stories from the Homefront. Thousands of servicemen and women returned from serving in Iraq now find themselves among this nation's millions of veterans, and they and their families are dealing with the aftereffects of war. This morning, a look at their return home from the soldiers who fought there. I uh, lost my uh, left arm, right the, the shoulder, and my right leg right below the knee. To the politicians who say their fight is far from over. They are trying to save money on the backs of our veterans. Many soldiers are struggling to regain their mental health, recover from debilitating battlefield injuries, or just adjust once they return home. Today we examine how soldiers are dealing with that reality and whether current VA funding levels are enough. But first, research shows one in 10 Iraq veterans suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Its symptoms include anxiety, depression, nightmares, and flashbacks. WFUV's Evelyn Lombardo has a closer look at how conditions on the battlefield and at home may be making the problem worse. For veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, the terror is most vivid at night. I still have this one particular nightmare all the time with... uh, I'm in this little bunker and this guy is chasing me, yelling at me in Arabic, and he about to hit like a bomb button and I wake up. Brooklyn native Private Michael Harmon joined the Army when he was 20 years old. He served as a combat medic in Iraq for 13 months. Harmon turned to alcohol and prescription drugs to keep his frightening visions at bay. I was very angry and very volatile for no reason, very depressed, became pretty much borderline alcoholic, really. I was drinking about a big bottle of Crown Royal a day, um, just trying to manipulate doctors for prescription drugs, anything to get my mind off of the atrocities that I saw being a medic. In Iraq, where troops are constantly under assault and improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, are an ever-present threat, psychiatrists say the symptoms are more intense. Dr. Ruth Schaefer counsels veterans with post-traumatic stress. There's a stage of alertness, of readiness, that these folks maintain over the entire period of combat. So what they're doing is they're taking a perfectly normal um, nervous system and they're keeping it hyper alert all the time. So, of course, long term, that's going to have a horrible effect on them. Left untreated, Dr. Schaefer says their symptoms will snowball, leading to drug addiction, homelessness, even suicide. And while the military knows how serious PTSD is, many Iraq and Afghanistan vets are not getting the treatment they need because of a Veterans Administration system that's overburdened and underfunded. New York Senator Hillary Clinton cites the Bush administration's recent admission of a $1 billion shortfall in VA funding as clear evidence of that. They are trying to save money on the backs of our veterans. I mean, it is, it is as simple as that. They want to cut back on VA help. They want to undermine the health and well-being of, you know, people who've gone into combat, you know, wearing the uniform of this country. Senator Clinton has made boosting funding for veterans' mental health care a top priority. She's introduced legislation that would provide millions in additional funding for improved screening and treatment programs. In the wake of the Iraq War, some funding was restored to the VA, but Dr. Tom Berger says that was after unprecedented cuts. The problem is that when we take this historical decline into account, we're still below what is needed to adequately hire trained professionals, uh, both in 
PTSD, mental health issues, as well as substance abuse programs to adequately treat the number of people that are coming back. Dr. Berger works with the Gulf War Veterans Association. He served in Vietnam. He says soldiers face more than one obstacle to mental health care. The stigma really is if you self-admit, okay, there's a good chance your career, if that's what you're, you're following, uh, will be toast because it's in your records. For Sergeant Shane Worley, who fought in the first Gulf War, it took losing his wife and daughter to make him recognize he had PTSD. She was ready to to leave me, and in fact she did. And I was not sure what was going on with me. I was very confused, angry, and separating myself from her. I didn't want to be around her, my newborn daughter, or anything like that. It's a little-known but common casualty of PTSD. Dr. Ruth Schaefer says veterans' marriages and close relationships suffer. They have difficulty forming attachments with people, even with people they loved before they went into the military, because their experience has been, most of them, that they've suffered a loss of a good buddy while they were in combat. And they develop some superstitions around it. And in order to keep people safe, they feel that if they don't get close to them, then they're not going to die on them. Dr. Schaefer says the first step in coming to grips with the demons, talking, recounting the vision or nightmare that haunts. There's kind of a forgiveness in implied in telling this story and not being rejected because the expectation is that if I tell you what I actually did there, you're not going to be able to be around me. It's a feeling familiar to Private Mike Harmon. Talking to peers was the only way he could get his rage under control. Once a month we have a group where we just vent our problems and anger and just to get it out there. And, uh, I mean, it just happened to me. Some people just can't overcome it, but, uh, like I said, I guess I'm one of the lucky ones that something just told me, like, you got to get on the right road now. You can't just waste your life. I'm 23 years old. But at 23, Harmon knows he'll never be the same. I'd say I'm at 90 95% from pre-war, but I, I, I'll never be 100. For professionals who work with veterans, like Dr. Schaefer, that's a best-case scenario. When I work with veterans, I tell them that the good news is that if we work together, they're going to feel better. The bad news is that they're never going to be who they were before they went to war. And with U.S. military leaders projecting a significant presence in Iraq until 2016, U.S. servicemen and women will be returning for years with mental wounds, from which they may never recover. I'm Evelyn Lombardo, WFUV News. A recent study from the U.S. Government Accountability Office found more than 6% of Army soldiers who served in either Iraq or Afghanistan were at risk for developing post-traumatic stress. But only 22% of those soldiers were given a psychiatric evaluation. Experts say if left undiagnosed and untreated, PTSD can have devastating consequences for veterans. It and other mental health disorders are among the leading reasons veterans can end up homeless. WFUV's Lauren Massinio takes a look at what's being done to prevent homelessness among Iraq veterans. Veterans make up 23% of the homeless population, and almost half of the nation's homeless veterans served in Vietnam. About 250 nonprofit veteran service organizations have opened since Vietnam. But John Laguna, president of New Era Veterans and a Vietnam vet himself, says despite the outbreak of community organizations, troops returning from Iraq and Afghanistan may have it bad. Guys are coming back maimed. They're coming back with PTSD. And then they're also coming back homeless and jobless. 
Laguna says troops returning from abroad have almost unanimous support from the American people, but he says every time there's a bill before Congress, New York gets the least amount of funding for Veterans Affairs. The Veterans Administration, they're doing a whole lot. They're doing a great job. It's the politicians that aren't. They're cutting back on VA to put it in some other state somewhere else, and New York is not, I don't think they're getting their fair share of it. Dr. Ruth Schaefer, also with New Era Veterans, says it's appalling that some of the men and women serving in the military have nothing to come home to. They were homeless the whole time they were fighting for us, in my opinion, and that should count. And we should be able to offer them the services right now. Dr. Schaefer says there are tens of thousands of homeless veterans in New York City alone, but she says there are only 325 single-room occupancy and 20 apartments available for homeless veterans in all five boroughs. An Iraq veteran by the name of Stephen Kraft turned the trouble he had finding a job into a way to help others. Kraft set up a training program to help returning troops. But Kraft says as hard as it is for returning vets to get back into the workforce, it's even tougher to find an affordable place to live. Good luck. You know, that's all I say. It's good luck. How is anybody going to afford, you know, the rent or to buy a house in this place, you know, this market? $3,000 rent? Some broker on Wall Street can afford a $3,000 rent. I certainly can't. I don't really know many, many vets that can. In Manhattan's 23rd Street subway station, a homeless man named Tom Schilling is an example of the struggles of returning veterans. He holds a sign that says, Homeless Combat Veteran, Please Help. Schilling says many Iraq and Afghanistan veterans have no idea what's ahead of them. Even though they signed up and they were, they were sworn in, they, uh, they have no idea what they got themselves into, even though they're on their way out. Schilling says because the majority of today's combat soldiers are so young, it's going to be much harder for them to get back on their feet once they return home. At least Vietnam, you know, they knew what they were dealing with. You know, the guys were older. On, a, on an average, these are kids. President and CEO of the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans, Cheryl Beversdorf, says most of today's military volunteers join up because they have no other choice. She says not having any real education or skills before they join makes it harder for them to get back on their feet once they're out. What they were assigned to do when they were in the military doesn't necessarily apply when they get back home and they're looking for a job in the private sector. There are organizations trying to make it easier for veterans to use the skills they fine-tuned in the military in their civilian jobs. Helmets to Hard Hats is a national program that connects veterans and reserve members with training and employment opportunities in the construction industry. Kevin O'Sullivan is the executive director of the New Jersey State Building and Construction Trade Council. He says military vets have the skills necessary to work construction. We've got guys that know how to wake up on time, they know how to take orders, They know about extreme weather conditions. That, in essence, is the base for the construction trades. Cheryl Beversdorf says a lack of jobs and affordable housing should enforce returning troops onto the street. She says although the war is still going on and the bulk of the troops haven't returned yet, the federal government is already preparing to help ease their transition back into civilian life. The Department of Veterans Affairs, as well as the Department of Labor, who is very much interested in helping uh, reemploy these these young people. We're all trying to work together to prevent um, homelessness from occurring to the extent that it has in the past amongst our Vietnam veterans so that we don't make the same mistakes again. But despite the government's goal to be ready for the hordes of troops returning home, Kevin O'Sullivan says it won't be surprising if many of the returning soldiers don't have a home to come back to. It's not uncommon to see these guys that uh, uh, come home and they don't know where to turn. And, and uh, after having endured battle 
having to go into a job at McDonald's. You know, where's, where's the American dream? John Laguna, president of New Era Veterans, is asking a similar question. He says the government needs to do more for returning troops than wave the flag and throw a parade. I'm Lauren Massinio, WFUV News. Joining me now to talk about these issues is Ann Fader. She is the director of the Mental Health Care Center at the James J. Peters VA Medical Center in the Bronx. The Journal of the American Medical Association has reported as many as one in ten Iraq veterans suffer from PTSD. Are you seeing numbers similar to that? Um, we are seeing many veterans returning to us uh, that are suffering some degree of acute stress. Um, we evaluate them. Um, we are we we try to be cautious in terms of immediately either labeling them with post-traumatic stress or immediately treating them for for PTSD. Um, we do see a a real spectrum of. Uh, diagnoses so that the one in the 10, I, I can't say for sure whether that's comparable to what we have. When you say you use caution, what does that mean in the actual process of diagnosis? Because there are charges that the VA tries to keep the number of PTSD diagnoses artificially low. Um, it's certainly not, not the case at our facility. We are, as, as you may know, we have um, uh, ex very uh, expanded PTSD services for all veterans, Iraqi veterans and, and others. Um, and we, what, we're, what we're careful about really is to learn from past experiences in treating veterans from other wars to make sure that we don't immediately either diagnose or uh, label someone with a, you know, a serious psychiatric disorder, and certainly PTSD is, is such. Okay, so a veteran walks into your VA facility and says, I need help, whether it's a mental health issue or, or something else. What is the process, and do you have the resources to deal with the influx of veterans that you're seeing? That's a good question because everyone always says, you know, well, what happens if I walk into a VA hospital? Um, we First of all, we have a Operation Iraqi Freedom Enduring Freedom Coordinator. This is someone whose full-time job is to help any veteran who walks in to navigate the system. And very often they walk in looking for some kind of medical treatment, and it's really the coordinator who will, in either doing the screen or even in just doing a quick, you know, uh, um, interview with the veteran, determine that, you know, this person could get a, requires or could benefit from an expanded mental health um, assessment. So that's one thing. The other is if it's, you know, they walk into the ER and it's midnight, um, the nurse or doctor is required to do a screen on the OIF uh, veteran, and that's the other way. Uh, the, that screen is completed, and immediately a referral is made to our um, PTSD program so that we really try to make sure that there is a safety net of uh, for every person walking in uh, to get the assessment made and ultimately the, the treatment provided. Is there a mandatory screening process for these soldiers? Because uh, what we've come across is many people have said to us, uh, there's a real stigma attached to this. Soldiers don't want to be screened because they don't want to be uh, in their medical records that uh, they suffer from PTSD. That's an excellent point. And um, our previous uh, OIF coordinator, uh, who recently uh, transitioned to another VA position, um, was extremely sensitive, as is the current one, to the fact that uh, there are veterans who, you know, are trying to get 
get a job in the with the police or with the fire department or with you know some other position where any hint of of psychiatric or mental disorder may compromise their application. Um, we have uh, offered those soldiers that come in or those veterans that come in with that issue a an opportunity to get adjustment treatments. And if we um, offer them adjustment counseling or a support group for returning Iraqi veterans, which isn't from their eyes as stigmatized, it's one way to, to link them to the needed services. And sometimes from there, it will lead to the understanding that, you know, seeing a psychiatrist really is necessary and then offering them, you know, a full panoply of services. And uh, when it comes to homelessness among veterans, I mean, PTSD and uh, related mental health issues it, or, tend to be a major cause of it, no? Um, we, our experience uh, locally at the, at the Bronx, James J. Peters VA, and I think it's probably the same with my colleagues, uh, certainly across this uh, uh, VA area, um, have not seen large numbers of OIF uh, veterans seeking services as 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 homeless uh, veterans. Uh, you know, thankfully, very, 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 very few. Um, I think my homeless coordinator informed me that in the last quarter, the last three months, we saw one. One is already too many. But we we address their issues um, as uh, you know as returning Iraqi veterans who are homeless as we would you know other other veterans. You know, helping them link to services in the community. Right, uh, and as you suggest, right now the the numbers on Iraqi uh, veterans homeless are are very low. Uh, but what uh, many of the advocates are saying is that the sort of trends, uh, as many of these young men come back, uh, young men and women come back, it's very troubling. So, uh, what is the best way to prevent a potential crisis, something like we saw with Vietnam veterans? Um, one of the things that we feel very strongly about in our homeless program, and again, we um, we, we are careful not to you know, separate the Iraqi veterans from, from the other, other veterans in terms of their needs. However, any veteran walking in who is homeless or has the you know, chance of being homeless is offered in the same time services uh, for, uh, for getting a job. So we have a very robust uh, work therapy program and work referral program because clearly we've learned over the years that if you don't offer someone an opportunity of getting out of the rut that they're in, you're just sort of repeating the cycle. So it's made a huge difference. In terms of federal VA funding, what services uh, might you be able to improve if there was an increase in funding levels? You know, I have to say that in the last several years, there has been a a very sort of large amount of funding available, and, and again, in, I know more about the mental health field, to expand the services, not only for general mental health issues, but also specifically for um, Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom and During Freedom. We most recently were funded for um, uh, providing compensated work therapy for returning Iraqi veterans who've had traumatic brown, uh, brain injury. That's pretty specific, um, but we've been offered Fund, we've been provided funding and we'll be hiring staff to actually assist that you know, very narrow group, but obviously very need, you know, needed uh, group of veterans. Ann Fader, director of the Mental Health Care Center at the James J. Peters VA Medical Center in the Bronx. Thanks so much. You're listening to War Stories from the Homefront. I'm Shandy April.
Along with the mental wounds, soldiers are returning from Iraq with debilitating physical injuries at a rate unseen in previous wars. The rates of amputations and traumatic injuries to the head and neck have all increased in Iraq. Army Sergeant Mike Minan was on patrol in Fallujah, at the time still an insurgent hotbed just west of Baghdad. Minan recalls feeling the morning's scorching heat just before a rocket ripped through his convoy. I mean, above the knee amputee, it came through our track and actually hit three of us. We, uh, three of us lost legs that morning from, through the uh, same rocket. More than 19,000 U.S. troops have been injured in Iraq. Hundreds are now amputees. Marine Adam Kuchlevsky. I uh, lost my uh, left arm, right the, the shoulder, and my right leg right below the knee. Um, I also have a lot of severe damage to my left leg. I had some nerve damage and uh, missing kneecap. The good news, both men agree, is they survived, which is more the rule than the exception in Iraq. The mortality rate among soldiers injured in Operation Iraqi Freedom is just over 10 percent. That's substantially lower than World War II and Vietnam, but the number returning with one less limb is substantially higher. If you, uh, you go to Bethesda or Walter Reed, you see it's, uh, it's relatively common. Um, the thing is, you know, we, uh, we started out over there, they didn't have real big explosives, we didn't have that good armor. Now we got a lot better armor, so they just use bigger explosives. One of the greatest dangers soldiers face in Iraq are IEDs, or improvised explosive devices. They can be anything from a crude artillery shell to a large cache of explosives and are rigged up to hit U.S. convoys. Colonel Joseph Brennan spent more than a year as a surgeon in Iraq. They were placing them in dead animals and they were placing material around them to increase the amount of uh, explosive damage, you know, metal fragments, BBs, etc. And uh, these are, are set to explode, and when they explode, you know, with the soldiers we have, obviously, uh, you know, the extremities aren't well covered in the, the face and the neck, and, uh, uh, and they can create tremendous amount of damage. The damage goes beyond loss of limbs. Severe injuries to the head and neck are common among soldiers hit by IEDs. Colonel Brennan was the first head and neck surgeon sent to Iraq. During some of the war's heaviest fighting two years ago, Colonel Brennan performed more than 270 operations in less than five months. He says soldiers' armor is better than it was at the start of the war, but it can't provide complete protection. The military is looking into, uh, into improving the body armor, improving the coverage of the body armor, including the helmets. But what you have to deal with is, you know, the soldiers have to do their jobs. So, you know, you can't, you can't essentially put them in a cocoon and you have to balance the, uh, the coverage of the body armor with their ability to fire a weapon and to fight. Marine Adam Kishlevsky says the improved armor probably saved his life, but soldiers are still paying a heavy price. We're staying alive because of our armor, but uh, with the bigger explosives, you know, we're, we're losing limbs. We don't... We don't have protection like that, and we would in, in our vital areas. In her book, Purple Hearts, Back from Iraq, photographer Nina Berman documents the injuries and lives of more than a dozen wounded soldiers. The first soldier I photographed was completely blind. I mean, he sees nothing but black. You know, for him, he began this war as an intensely powerful young man. And now his dad has to walk him to the bathroom. Berman says for many of the soldiers she spoke to, their return home is just the beginning of an often long and painful recovery process. One thing the American people don't understand is that when you get released from hospital, it doesn't mean you won't go back. Most of the soldiers I know go back for several surgeries. Some of them have had 30 surgeries. You know, can you imagine 
30 surgeries. The injuries have spurred new research into both treatment and prevention of traumatic head, neck, and brain injuries, as well as improved prostheses for amputees. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs has committed more than $7 million for a research center in Rhode Island. The goal, to develop more functional prosthetic limbs. Dr. Joel Coopersmith is the VA's chief research and development officer. People who have, let's say, um, spinal cord injury in their neck, we can actually have images of brain waves or brain activity connected to a prosthesis. So when an individual thinks of moving a limb, the limb will actually move. Dr. Cooper-Smith calls the research promising, but admits real results are likely years away. For now, the military says it's doing its best to keep up with increasingly sophisticated insurgent IEDs, the cause of nearly half the amputations resulting from battlefield injuries in Iraq. Meanwhile, another facility is in the works at the VA's Brooks Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. The new $30 million facility will focus solely on amputee care. The VA admits it's concerned by the flood of amputees, but says it has no doubt the system can handle it. Some politicians and many of the leading voices of the anti-war movement have repeatedly compared the war in Iraq to Vietnam. But returning veterans say their reception from the general public bears little resemblance to the way many Vietnam vets were treated. WFUV's Dan Rafter has more on their transition home. Within the span of just 11 days, Captain Christopher Daniels of the New York National Guard went from fighting on the battlefield in Iraq to sitting at home in his living room. Daniel says the sudden transition often makes it difficult for returning soldiers like himself to deal. You don't even realize you just want to get home and, and get out of the Army and be done with it and put it behind you. Daniels and his wife Rhonda have two children, ages 5 and 7. Rhonda says a lack of outside support means helping her husband readjust to daily life at home is very much a family affair. I think that because there is not a lot of support here, especially in the Long Island area, that each individual family has to take it upon themselves to help with that assimilation process. Captain Daniels says troops fighting in Iraq don't want the public to feel burdened by the conflict, but he worries Americans just don't understand the realities of the war. I don't think the public really has an idea there's even a war going on right now. I mean, you know, a lot of people have, you know, support your troop bumper stickers on, but I don't know if they really realize, you know, what the troops go through over there. Michael Takeff is the author of Brave Men, Gentle Heroes, a book looking at wartime stories of father-son vets who served in conflicts like World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. Takeoff says any sense of public apathy likely comes from the fact that people here in the U.S. aren't being asked to contribute to the war effort in any substantive way. The fact that the country is not involved, not with the draft, not with tax hikes, not with things which we had during World War II, the scrap metal drives, the recycling. In the absence of all of that, it's very easy for people just to, to wash their hands of it. But Takeoff says Iraq vets are facing less turmoil than those troops who came back from Vietnam. We don't have the same uh, distrust of the military in general that we had as the Vietnam War went on and on without end. I, I think people are not going to, to hold the sins of the government against the soldiers today. Like Christopher and Rhonda Daniels, the McHugh family takes great strength from one another when it comes to dealing with the effects of war. George McHugh served in World War II. His son George was in Vietnam. The younger George now has two sons anxious to go to Iraq. At a veterans event on Long Island, the eldest McHugh's 84th birthday and service to his country were honored. 
George McHugh sees some big differences between how World War II and the Iraq War compare, both on the home front and the battlefield. Seems to be a different war altogether. Today it seems to be more of a push-button war. And uh, when, when I was there, it was, it was soldiers meeting on the battlefield, armies. George's son recalls how lessons he learned from his father helped him as he went to Vietnam. In each case, the father told the sons about the stories. And uh, in each case, my, myself included, when I finally wound up in the service, I said, he was right. No matter how you describe it, it's ne- it's, a veteran can't describe it to somebody that ever does it justice, not even to his son. George McHugh's grandson, Michael, is now eagerly awaiting deployment. He doesn't know where he'll end up stationed, but he's hoping to go to Iraq. Michael says the lack of overwhelming public support for the war isn't stopping him from wanting to serve. Today, it's mixed feelings, really. you got lots of people that like it, lots of people that don't. I mean, they need our support, though. They always need our support. They always have and always will. If or when Michael heads to battle, he knows his family is fully behind him. Through sharing not only stories, but also the common experience of war, the McHughes have a built-in support system. The power of family support is clear when you look at their story and hear the words of a gleaming grandfather. I'm proud of my grandson, yes. He's following my footsteps, I guess. (laughs) I'm Dan Rafter, WFUV News. With more than 100,000 U.S. troops still deployed in Iraq, veterans groups say the need for services will increase significantly in coming years. In this year's midterm elections, Iraq veterans will try to make their mark on Congress, with at least nine running for seats all across the country. Most of them are running as Democrats and campaigning on full mandatory funding for the VA, full health care benefits for returning soldiers, and deadlines for troop reductions in Iraq. You've been listening to War Stories from the Homefront, a production of WFUV News. I'm Shandy April. Thanks for listening. The podcast of Cityscape gets support from WFUV's contributing members. Find out more at WFUV.org.